Y'all, this first story is so good. Oh, why does this bring me joy? So you know that Burger King story we talked about yesterday? It's International Women's Day. They decide to do this shock tweet. They tweet, women belong in the kitchen, and then in follow-up tweets in a thread, one of which was posted about two hours after the first one they announced, and that is an issue because female chefs are underrepresented and we're launching a scholarship so that female employees can advance. Well, I think a lot of people support it, you know, trying to make an effort, some progress. They, they didn't like the way that it was done. But ultimately, after almost a full day of backlash, they deleted the tweet and a and that ultimately seemed to bring to an end of what has become kind of the, the standard outrage story that we see in the news. But I then took an extra second to look a little deeper into this story because something stood out to me. But initially we saw Burger King's global chief marketing officer defending the ad, with him pointing to print versions of the ad suggesting that the issue wasn't the phrasing, but rather the way that it was broken up on Twitter. Which I will say is partly an extremely valid argument. Right, if you put the women belong in the kitchen, dot, 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 if they want to in a single tweet, you don't get this backlash. But when you actually look at the full page ad that they bought in the New York Times, which I believe can range between 150 to $250,000, there is fine print that reads, and we'll, we'll try and CSI it up for you. The Burger King Foundation will grant two 25,000 Burger King culinary scholarships to two current BK female team members. Meaning that if Burger King paid $250,000 for this ad, they paid five times the amount they're actually giving to women to let people know that they're giving that money to women. All two of them, by the way. And that's without even considering the full realized cost of this campaign. What in the performance activism Olympics? Wow. Oh. Like, I don't think a lot of us thought it was a genuine effort, but to see it exposed in this way is so satisfying and stupid and hor- I don't know. Anyway, hey, welcome to the Tuesday Philip DeFranco show. Hit that like button, otherwise threats. Also, I read some of your comments to Trey yesterday. He says, thank you. Then let's talk about entertainment slash celebrities in hot water news, starting with kind of the, the lighter stuff. Starting with Olivia Jade, of course, massive influencer who has now returned to social media after her mother served time. Her father is still serving time for the Varsity Blues scandal. And that whole situation where you had rich parents getting their rich kids into schools by doing uh, some not so great things. Hence the, the prison sentences and Olivia Jade actually popped up in the news because she uh, she tried to dunk on someone that was trolling her. They ask her, how's college? They spell it collage. Olivia makes an easy and kind of funny joke about it. Thank you for asking. Um, it's pretty good. I actually love collaging. I'm working on this really sick scrapbook that I have to show you guys soon. But it wasn't as funny as the comments that read, does a scrapbook have pictures of you and your rowing team? Which, if you are familiar with Olivia Jade's story, is just, I mean, in the words of uh, Olivia Jade. It's chef's kiss. You also had Pierce Morgan in the news for really the most Pierce Morgan kind of thing. But following that huge interview of Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, one of the biggest critics of it was Pierce Morgan. This is very unsurprising. Right? Even if you just take a casual stroll through his Twitter, it seems like he lives to berate Meghan Markle, with him facing a lot of backlash in particular for saying that he doesn't believe Meghan's claims about the toll that dealing with the press had on her mental health. Right, and this also kind of feels like an extension of Pierce and many others who are like, oh my God, look at Meghan Markle. She can't handle some criticism, so she runs away. Which is why it seemed that so many people found it hilarious that this morning on Good Morning Britain, you had one of Pierce Morgan's colleagues, co-host Alex Beresford, criticizing Pierce Morgan on the air, and Pierce apparently couldn't handle it and walked off stage. And I understand that you don't like Meghan Markle. You've made it so clear a number of times on this program, a number of times. And I understand that you've got a personal relationship with Meghan Markle or had one and she cut you off. She's entitled to cut you off if she wants to. Has she said anything about you since she cut you off? I don't think she has, but yet you continue to trash her. Okay. I'm done with this. No, no, no. Sorry. No. Oh, Sorry. Do you know what? That's pathetic. You can trash me, maybe not my No, own no, no, no. See I'm, you later. I'm being... 
Sorry, can't this do this. This is absolutely diabolical behavior. And also, if you're wondering what that personal beef is about, uh, apparently back in 2018, he wrote a piece for the Daily Mail where he said that Meghan ghosted him in 2015. But I mean, I know Pierce Morgan called the Meghan Markle interview a, a nauseating whine-a-thon, but if you really want a nauseating whine-a-thon, read that article. Right, basically, it looks like the two had chatted together online, they met up a few times for friendly and professional conversations, but uh, she apparently stopped talking to him around the time that she met Harry. But yeah, ultimately, the whole thing this morning, not shocking news to anyone even vaguely familiar with who Pierce Morgan really is. He loves to lash out at everyone, it also seems like he particularly loves going at women, and then if you go at him, oh, the victimhood. But he can seemingly never believe that he may actually be the person in the wrong in a situation. Also, I guess I should note, reports are now saying that his comments about Megan have drawn in over 40,000 complaints to UK media regulator Ofcom, who reportedly are now actually going to investigate peers. And also, now as I was finishing up today's story, we learned that he has now resigned from his role on Good Morning Britain, with the network saying in a statement, following discussions with ITV, Piers Morgan has decided now is the time to leave Good Morning Britain. ITV has accepted this decision and has nothing further to and we also had Scotty Sire back in the news apologizing yesterday for the video that he made trying to poke holes in the sexual assault allegations that Seth Francois made against David Dobrik and Jason Nash. Deleting the video and writing, I would like to apologize to anyone who feels as though I disrespected or invalidated their story. That was never my intention and I mean that so sincerely. I let emotion get the better of me and I chose my approach and many of my words poorly. And adding that he expected the video to be analyzed and picked apart, but did not expect it to hurt so many people. And then finally, for this section, we had KSI in the news because you had a lot of people saying that he was transphobic. With a growing number of people sharing and showing instances where he used a trans slur or misgendered someone, KSI today seemingly taking the situation head on, tweeting, hold up, people actually think I'm transphobic. And from there, you have someone in the comments explaining that he had said some things in the past, but never apologized, also brought up more specific concerns, and KSI responded, didn't even mean to misgender, just said that the person had a better beard than me, that's all. And I honestly didn't even know that T word was a bad word. What's the correct term? to use. That then led to him actually thanking that Twitter user for telling him that transgender is the correct term to use. And then, after some backlash about still using the slur in some of his posts, he tweeted, My bad for saying transgender slurs. Honestly, didn't even know they were slurs. I know now, though. And ultimately, I mean, you know, that's really it for the story. And I, like almost everything else we covered here, it comes down to the court of public opinion. And with this story specifically, I also think it comes down to what do you want to see from instances like this? Right? I'm not trans. KSI's words had no chance of affecting me, and I don't get to invalidate if you were hurt by what he said. So the question I end up asking is, with this KSI situation, Situation, is this not the, the potentially the best result from it? People had a problem with something someone said. They said, what's wrong with it? Someone explained it and he said, oh, I get it now, I'm sorry. Right? Is the hope and goal education and progress forward? Or is the goal to try to beat down, destroy, or in some way maim those who you feel like wronged you. Personally, my hope is the education because also I'll, I'll be very honest here. 10 years ago with no ill intent in my heart, uh, the, the word that he ended up using is probably something I would have said. But I was fortunate enough to come across and make friends with people that, that were willing to share their experiences, be vulnerable with me, as well as strangers who gave me enough grace and didn't slam me down. Now understand, I'm not automatically owed that, but I, I greatly appreciate it. And I think we, we get to a better place if, if that's what happens. Also, I get that it comes down to, do you feel like someone's genuine trying to learn, it, it, it gets, it's a whole messy situation. And actually, kind of on that note, we saw KSI later say, 2021, positive vibes only. Need to stop with the hate man on all sides, including people who support me. Life's too short to be angry and hateful towards other people. Only way we advance is with positivity. But then, following it up with, 
Fuck Jake Paul, though. Yeah, valid. Then, let's talk about two big stories regarding immigration. First up, you had the Biden administration announcing yesterday that it will grant temporary protected status, aka TPS, to Venezuelans already in the United States. What that means is that about 320,000 more people will be allowed to legally live and work here for 18 months, with this decision being a notable expansion of a Trump-era executive order that affected 145,000 Venezuelans. But also, understand that since Biden took office, there have been widespread and bipartisan calls from Congress for Biden to grant these people TPS and expand who qualifies. And as far as who qualifies, you're talking about Venezuelans who continuously live in the United States, pass a background check, and have arrived by Monday. When announcing this move, you had the Secretary of Homeland Security saying, it is in times of extraordinary and temporary circumstances like these that the United States steps forward to support eligible Venezuelan nationals already present here, while their home country seeks to right itself out of the current crises. Also, connected to that, this decision to grant TPS to Venezuelans also happens to coincide with talk that the administration is looking to possibly reconsider Trump's sanction policy against the country. But, despite that news, one senior official told the Associated Press, the United States is in no rush to lift sanctions. But, we need to recognize here that unilateral sanctions over the last four years have not succeeded in achieving an electoral outcome in the country. So you had that, but then, I mean, not all the immigration news is good news for Biden. It's now been revealed that currently the administration is holding over 3,200 unaccompanied migrant children at detention facilities designed for 500 kids. Right? That's higher than the 2,600 peak during the 2019 immigration crisis. And this revelation comes after top administration officials went to the U.S.-Mexico border to review these facilities in a fact-finding mission that the president has not yet been briefed on. And as far as the issue at hand, it appears to be a bottleneck in the process to get these children out of the facilities and into other housing solutions. Right, like with a family already in the United States or with sponsors. And in particular, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has stalled the process to a standstill as officials try to ensure that the virus isn't spread by incoming children moving through the process. But you have experts saying, right, that kind of care, that kind of mindset, it's a double-edged sword because it's leaving these kids in cramped facilities. But also on that note, the Biden administration announced on Friday that it was going to open more facilities to add more beds to try and alleviate some of the conditions. But even with that, the administration is likely going to continue to struggle with the reportedly hundreds of unaccompanied minors arriving at the border per day. An issue that has been increasingly worse as the pandemic has continued to ravage Latin American countries and their economies. Now, as far as what happens from here, you have officials from Health and Human Services who run the facility saying they are working on the issue, saying that its Office of Refugee Resettlement is aggressively working with our interagency partners to ensure that unaccompanied migrant children are safe and unified with family members or other suitable sponsors as quickly and safely as possible, and adding the number of unaccompanied children in our care is constantly changing. But the optics aren't great for the Biden administration, and it highlights a system that is slow as well as the complexities of trying to have a coherent and workable border policy that strikes a balance with humanitarian concerns. And then let's talk about the news around Derek Chauvin. He, of course, the former Minneapolis police officer who kneeled on George Floyd's neck. And he's in the news today because the judge overseeing his trial has decided to move ahead with jury selection today, despite massive legal hurdles that could delay the case or even undermine it entirely. Right, so Chauvin's long-awaited trial, which has been described as one of the most important in the nation's history, officially kicked off yesterday. And he is facing two charges for his role in Floyd's death. The first charge is second-degree unintentional murder, which alleges that Chauvin killed Floyd without intent while committing or attempting to commit felony third-degree assault. And that is punishable by up to 40 years in prison, and the second charge is second-degree manslaughter. And this one alleges that Chauvin consciously took the chances of causing death or great bodily harm, and if he's convicted for this, he faces up to 10 years in prison. Now, very notably here, prosecutors also filed a third charge of third-degree murder that ended up being dismissed back in October by Hennepin County District Court Judge Peter Cahill, with that judge arguing that the charge requires the actions of Chauvin to be eminently dangerous to others, which he said was not the case. But on Friday, the Minnesota Court of Appeals ruled that the judge should reconsider the state's motion. So as a result, you had Prosecutors asking the appeals court to block jury selection, which was supposed to start yesterday until the issue was resolved. And in response to that, we saw the judge sending prospective jurors home yesterday afternoon, but 
still today decided to move forward despite the lack of legal clarity on the question, saying that he would continue the selection process until the appeals court explicitly told him to stop. And that decision prompted a ton of backlash from prosecutors and legal observers who noted that not only was it unusual to proceed with a case that the looming appellate ruling could delay by weeks or even months, but also that the lack of clarity on the charges and legal questions about Cahill's jurisdiction could later be used as grounds for a defense to appeal to have this case thrown out. Right, as at least one prosecutor has pointed out, it doesn't make sense for the court to seat a jury before the full charges are even known. And arguing that while such a consequential appeal is pending, the lower court shouldn't have authority to move forward. And while Chauvin, the defense attorney, said he supports Cahill's decision, he also said that if the third charge is reinstated, he will file an appeal with the Minnesota Supreme Court, a move that could also seriously delay and complicate the process. But yeah, that is where we are right now. It appears that things are still moving forward. Right, and we're starting to see reports about the first juror being selected. Also, I had the question, is it really possible to find an impartial jury for this? Like, who has not heard about this case? Yeah, where I'll end this is, what are your thoughts on this whole situation, the judge, the, the third charge, should it be in, it should not? Let me know what you're thinking and why in those comments down below. Then, just like we said what happened, we're now seeing more states moving forward, trying to restrict voting. For example, this morning we had Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds signing a Republican-backed elections bill that will impose a series of new voting restrictions. Among other things, the new law will cut Iowa's early voting period from 29 days to 20. Mandate polls close at 8 p.m. rather than 9 p.m. for state and federal elections. Change the policy, allowing absentee ballots postmarked by election day to arrive for six days after, and instead require them to arrive by the time polls close at 8 p.m. Also limit who can return an absentee ballot to just the voter, their immediate family, household, or caregiver, instead of anyone they designate, such as a get-out-the-vote campaigner. It also makes it a felony for election officials to fail to carry out any laws or guidance from the Iowa Secretary of State, with fines of up to $10,000, and it strips auditors of much of their authority in running elections in their counties, including their ability to send registered voters absentee ballots unless requested. And honestly, when you look at some of the restrictions here, and then you look, at the numbers, it's hard to see this as anything other than a transparent attempt to knock down the Democrat vote. Right? Like in many other states, more Democrats than Republicans voted early. You're talking about 76% to 52% in Iowa. Right? And of the 1.7 million people that voted in the state the last election, more than 1 million voted early either by mail or in person. And while in a state like Iowa where you have Trump winning by eight points, it's not the biggest deal. The issue is the spread of this sort of voting restriction. This is just one in a number of places that are moving to restrict voting. And it's part of the reason you should have been and moving forward, you should care about local elections because this is going to happen anywhere it can legally happen. When you have a political party that on a number of places have a minority opinion, the only way to maintain minority rule is to change the rules, to limit or hamper what made you lose there or elsewhere. But hey, that's also just my opinion on a story you can agree or disagree. And ultimately, that is where I'm going to end today's show. And of course, uh, whether it be this or anything else that stood out to you, I'd love to know your thoughts in those comments down below. Also, hey, if you're new here, hit that subscribe button, the like button, all the good stuff. Join the family. If you're looking for more news, goodness, I got you covered right here. But with that said, of course, as always, my name is Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces and I'll see you tomorrow.